from the studios of KPCW in Park City. It's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley. Well, conflicts frequently arise over environmental issues such as climate change, natural resources, and laws and regulations. They typically emerge from diverging interests and values among those stakeholders. And in his new book, Managing Environmental Conflict, Joshua Fisher discusses the causes of and solutions to such conflicts, providing an overview of the theory and practice of collaborative approaches to managing environmental disputes. Now, that's in the first part of this show. Then in the second half, we'll speak with Earl Ellis, professor of geography and environmental studies at the University of Maryland, about his December 4th guest essay in the New York Times titled, 1.5 degrees is not the problem. In it, Professor Ellis argues that we have become obsessed with targets, the principal one being to hold planetary warming to no more than 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit above the pre-industrial average. Right, but this crisis is not about the planet going haywire per se. Rather, this crisis is a failure to assign and enforce social responsibilities, something the wealthiest and most capable societies need to do a better job with. Professor Earl Ellis in the second part of the show. Environmental awareness and education. That's what this green earth is all about. Stay with us. And we're back. You are listening to This Green Earth. I'm Claire Wiley. And I'm Chris Cherniak. And in the first part of the show, we are going to be talking with Joshua Fisher, who's going to be discussing his new book, Managing Environmental Conflict. Joshua, thank you for joining us. Chris and Claire, it's a pleasure to be here. Oh, great. Well, uh, first of all, Joshua, um, I understand that you are a Utah native, which we are proud to say. Uh, but why don't you give us a little bit of your background? And it sounds like you're growing up uh, on a Western ranch, also informed some of your decisions in the future. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks so much. So I am from Utah. I grew up in a small farming and ranching town called Cornish, which is about 30 minutes north of Logan, about an hour and a half, uh, two hours north of Salt Lake. Um, and I grew up there on, a, our, on our small family farm where really the pragmatic realities of life in the West um, were at the forefront of my, my experience. You know, growing up in a time of drought, in a time of changing environmental regulations, in a time of changing climate regimes, all really made the issues of water access, land access, land tenure, environmental justice at the forefront of, of my experience growing up. And I've learned from an early age that environmental management really is conflict management. So thinking about uh, water allocation on our ditch, on our irrigation ditch, um, in times when we had wet years, no real problems. Times when we had dry years, then issues of whose water turn is it? How much water do we have to share among all the all the riparian users? Um, those issues became really, really close to close to my heart and close to the lived experience of our family, where we had to make practical, pragmatic decisions around: Do we share water with our neighbors? Do we ask our water our neighbors for water? How do we manage the resulting conflicts? And so early on, I started to see environmental management and farm management or ranch management as an issue of conflict. 
wanted to understand better how environmental factors impact social relationships and how we can encourage social relationships that are both pro-social and pro-environmental. So I've really dedicated my career to trying to understand this, this feedback between humans and the environment and build mechanisms to enable better collaboration. And can you share, um, now in this book, um, are you sharing techniques? Are you going through your process? Um, what is it that you kind of unfold in your writings? Yeah, this book is what's called a primer on environmental conflict management. It's out of the Earth Institute at Columbia University's um, Earth Institute Primer Series that is a set of guidebooks on the pragmatic how-to do environmental management. So this book uses two frameworks to understand how conflict happens and why conflict is sort of inevitable in environmental systems, and then what the mechanisms are that enable collaboration. We all know that we need to cooperate, we need to collaborate. We don't really know how. Um, and a lot of times in environmental management um, processes, we assume that we're all talking about the same thing. We assume that we understand regulations in the same way as we assume that we understand each other's needs and interests out of an environmental decision. But the reality is we are often talking about very different things. So when I'm talking about irrigation, I may be talking about water budgets. For you, it's more a matter of life and death for your livestock. For someone else, it's a matter of historic injustice or historic justice. So we're talking about functionally different things, but all assuming we're talking about the same thing. So in the book, I trace how ecosystems evolve over time, how they change and how they respond to change. I also trace how, how social systems evolve and how we create institutions to manage uh, stakeholder conflicts across processes of change. Uh, then I create, I use a a synthesized framework that uses the social ecological perspective and the social systems perspective to trace out a process where we can encourage more collaborative dynamics in moments of conflict. Uh, conflict is inevitable. Conflict is simply descriptive of a set of social relationships under duress. The book uses these two frameworks, social ecological systems theory and social, um, social relations theory to understand how we can better encourage collaboration in moments of conflict. What role does, I guess, uh, defining success play in trying to um, act in a collaborative fashion? When two, two parties sit down and, and you know there's, there's going to be conflict, is there value in first saying, how do we each define success in this discussion? And then maybe going from there and trying to work and understand each other's position? I think that's a really useful way to, to think about it. But there's a, an earlier step to defining success. Yeah. First, we have to agree on what we're actually talking about. Okay. So if, for me, water allocation is about economics, for you it's about social justice, we have to understand each other's perspective on what this environmental dilemma around water is. Until we can understand each other, each other's interests, needs, and values deeply, we can't actually talk about the same thing. So we can't actually define 
what success looks like mm. because we're talking about functionally different things. So collaboration is all about understanding each other on a deep level. It doesn't mean liking each other. It doesn't mean agreeing with each other. It does mean understanding each other and being able to build discussion and decision-making processes that recognize and legitimize each other in that, in that process. Once we do that, then we can set out um, what success would look like and define or design a process to enable joint success rather than competing and in sort of a zero-sum win-lose arrangement. We can create and design a process that enables mutual gains. Right. Um, oh, okay, so let's, let's stay with the water argument because you know that's, that's a primary import here out west and here in Utah. So, so perhaps um, uh, uh, two parties sitting down and, and one having an economic arm, let's say a farmer who uh, needs the water to, to grow their alfalfa, um, which is their livelihood. And then the other party is someone who wants to make sure that the Great Salt Lake doesn't dry up. So, so, the, so the lake needs that water and, and they may present a, a positive argument as like, well, that, that water is actually more important to the Great Salt Lake than it is to your alfalfa farm. So how do those two, I was using that as a template or an example, a starting point. How do those two parties, like you say, first sit down and understand, like you say, understand their positions now, how do they work to uh, some type of collaborative uh, end result? Yeah, it's uh, each instance of environmental conflict is unique. It's defined by all the stakeholders that are part of the part of the problem. So the yeah. first part is really mapping out who those stakeholders are and finding ways for them to come together. There may be some conflicts that are so acute that the parties aren't ready to come to a negotiating table and start hashing out water allocation. Mm -hmm. so there may be a lot of earlier work that needs to happen in terms of shuttle diplomacy or one-on-one um, -on -one meetings or small stakeholder group meetings um, that needs to happen in order to prepare people to come to, to a table, to a negotiating table. Uh, again, each, each instance is unique, so there's not a sort of one-size-fits-all um, plan or strategy sure. or recipe to how to do this. Um, but the key, I think, really is mapping out who the stakeholders are, trying to understand what their needs, what their interests, what their objectives are, and understand what their power is in terms of convening, in terms of decision-making, in terms of enforcement, um, and getting a really really coherent understanding of that social network um, and the resources that each each stakeholder brings. Well, once you do that, then you start to intuitively understand there are these two social connections that we could leverage to bring a third party in or uh, to bring a neutral facilitator in or to leverage the NEPA process, the National Environmental Policy Act process. Um, to understand some of those deeper technical issues. Um, once you start to understand the social network and the nuance of each stakeholder, the implicit or the um, obscure uh, drivers of conflict start to become more tangible, more uh, 
more discernible. And the process of building those relationships or building the social capital needed to negotiate um, becomes more more clear, I guess. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm hoping, I guess, being a hopeful human, that most stakeholders really do want a resolution when it comes to the environment. And you have, you've traveled around the world and you've uh, seen a lot of these uh, different ways in which people are reacting to each other and that conflict resolution. Uh, where have you gone or uh, what work have you done that you have seen this be successful? Mm. So a lot of the, my work has been in the Amazon um, in the Peruvian Amazon, actually, working with networks of protected areas to design management plans for national parks, for conservation areas that are conflict sensitive. Um, we tend to design environmental institutions in a way that's quite rigid. Um, we set out a National Environmental Policy Act that prescribes how we should make environmental decisions or how we should assess the impact of decision making. And it's rigid. It's slow to change, slow to evolve, but we live in dynamic systems, dynamic social systems, dynamic environmental systems. And so we need much more responsive management structures and processes. So a lot of the work I've done is um, facilitate planning processes and land use management um, planning in the Amazon, as well as in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, to try and build more responsive, more agile, uh, and more adaptive governance frameworks. It requires bringing together a lot of stakeholders who don't necessarily want to be uh, engaging with each other or mm -hmm. don't necessarily have a good history of engaging with each other. And so it's much more about designing a process um, to create a pathway for collaboration than it is building a rigid structure. Just like in the West, we know some years we have drought, some years we have uh, flood, some years we have, uh, you know, a pretty good balanced water budget. Um, any allocation decision we make that we try and enforce rigidly is going to be maladapted to the reality of this year versus next year versus last year. So rather than trying to create static and rigid structures, what we need to be doing is create pathways or processes for collaboration. It's like building, building the neural pathways for your stakeholder network to to be able to collaborate in different contexts and different conditions. We are talking to Joshua Fisher, who has written the book Managing Environmental Conflict. And I'm curious, too, on you kind of talked about um, kind of this volatile water play that happens here in Utah. Some years there's drought, some years um, there is flooding, and the budget is kind of all over the place, it's not predictable really. How would you say that climate change is affecting conflicts here and around the world in the future? That's a great question and an important one, particularly as we're looking at a world above 1.5 degrees pre-industrial warming. Um, I think you're gonna be talking about that with Professor Ellis next. Correct. There's a sort of popular belief that climate change causes conflict or will cause conflict in the future. Uh, there's a assumed path dependency that I think is false. Um, when we think about conflict, conflict is a function of change. Our systems are constantly changing. And so climate change is one particularly 
forceful set of changes, um, one acute set of changes, but it's not necessarily, it's not path dependent that we'll end up in destructive conflict. We'll end up in conflict. Interests will become incompatible. Uses of environmental systems will, will become incompatible. And so we need to create pathways or processes for managing that change or managing our social relationships in that change. Just like we can collapse into destructive conflict dynamics where we're in, in constant competition and zero sum negotiations, we can also end up in collaborative conflict where we humanize each other, we understand each other's needs and interests as valid, and we create those pathways for collaboration. Um, uh, two scholars, Tina Emerson and um, Nabachi, have create have written a book called "Collaborative and Collaborative Governance Regimes," where they describe the mechanisms at a very granular level that enable collaboration. So, what my book does is builds on that framework for collaboration to embed it in a process of ecological change and cycles of change, um, and show with several case studies that it is possible to take advantage of moments of environmental change and build those pathways for collaboration. Uh, I'm guessing that collaboration, successful collaboration and conflict resolution does not happen unless there is important um, measures of empathy and civility. Can you talk a little bit about the, the, the importance of those two ideas in trying to resolve conflict? Absolutely. So uh, both empathy and civility, critical. Empathy so we can understand and be able to humanize other stakeholders, right. understand and recognize the validity of their needs. Civility in terms of having uh, a social contract or an ethical process for engaging with each other despite um, moments of change and moments of duress. Um, when I talk about in the book, talk about how do you recognize and design an effective process for collaboration, I use three types of justice as sort of aspirational guide marks. Mm -hmm. One is procedural justice, where all the stakeholders agree to and define what a fair, effective, ethical process looks like. The second is distributive justice, where we talk about the ethical stakeholders, again, defining what ethical, fair distribution looks like in a decision-making process. And then retributive justice, or the enforcement justice, so processes that are, again, defined by stakeholders um, to be fair, ethical, inclusive. Um, you need those three types of justice to work in concert with, with each other. If you have a fair process, but an unfair distribution, the any agreement you arrive at is probably destined to be weak or uh, to fail. If you don't have good, fair mechanisms for enforcement, the same. Um, so these three types of justice, I think, are critical, procedural, distributive, and retributive. But more than that, when I think about the current state of our environment and the future state of our environment, I want to encourage societies and decision makers to really take the mantle of re restorative justice or regenerative justice hmm. as the overarching framework that we're shooting for. We know in 
agricultural systems, there's a move toward regenerative agriculture to build soil quality, to build um, carbon sequestration potential and um, ecological integrity. Why not have the same principle applied to social and environmental management? Regenerative justice as the guidepost for enabling better collaboration in the context of climate change, in the context of shrinking water budgets, in the context of changing water allocations on the Colorado River. Why not move toward a regenerative um, approach where we regenerate social relationships, we regenerate the social contract, and we regenerate environmental quality? That's really what I'm aspirationally shooting for with this book. Is there, I know we only have a couple minutes left, but but is it, uh, one reason why that's so difficult is that because either party sees the world as a zero-sum game, that me giving up something is me, to you, is, is me losing something. And you have to overcome that, that fear of a zero-sum world. Absolutely. I think particularly in recent years, we've moved, at least in the U.S., in an ever, ever increasingly competitive direction that I think is has its own pathologies that reinforce this idea that the world is zero sum, that we're in win or lose. And it's it's almost desperate. You know, if I give something up, I'm losing. Or if you get ahead, I'm losing. We need to shift out of that mindset and understand that really humans are are collaborative is a collaborative species. We're a collaborative species. Um, we're better when we're together. We have more resources. We have more potential. We have more capability when we coordinate and collaborate. It doesn't mean there's not a place for competition. It doesn't mean there's not a place for uh, individual excellence. What it does mean is when we coordinate, um, we're stronger. When we're together, we're stronger. And, you know, in the science that I do here at Columbia University, or at, I'm also a professor at Hiroshima University in Japan, in my research and my science, I see time and time again where collaboration and coordination is much stronger and much more value additive than competition. So moving toward that approach, I think, is really critical in the, in the next decades. Well, the book is called Managing Environmental Conflict. We're speaking with Joshua Fisher. Joshua, thank you so much for coming on the show and for shedding some light on this. And where can people go yeah. if they want to get the book or learn more about you and your studies? Absolutely. So the book is uh, for sale on Columbia University Press website or through your local booksellers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, it's available in most places you can buy a book. Um, the website for my work is ac4.columbia.edu, um, and that's the research center that I direct here at Columbia University. Um, and there's also a, a website on the Hiroshima University website that's NERPS, N-E-R-P-S dot org, which stands for the Network for Education and Research on Peace and Sustainability. Um, any of those places, you can find more information about me and my work. And really, it's just a pleasure to be here, Chris and Claire. Thank you for, for inviting me. Oh, thank you so much for joining us this, this morning, Professor Fisher. Um, and we'll have you back 
uh, because you know what? Nothing says conflict than the holiday season, <laughs> particularly when it comes to issues like in, uh, environmental issues. Fair. I wish you had like a three by five card I could hand out <laughs> to my family members on how to manage conflict. There, there's a challenge. Yeah, well, we appreciate your <laughs> and, insights. And another and interview hope, for yes. another interview. We another hope time. that people uh, listen to what you have to say and, and uh, we can bring it together yes. um, for a more peaceful future. <laughs> so thank you, Joshua. And uh, we are going to take a quick break and we're going to be right back with Earl Ellis right here on This Green Earth. Welcome back to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley. And joining us for the second part of the show is uh, Earl Ellis. He's a professor of geography and environmental systems at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And he's here to talk uh, about, among other things, a recent essay that, uh, that was printed in the New York Times titled... 1.5 degrees is not the problem. And by 1.5 degrees, we mean Celsius. We here will, if you'll agree with this, Professor Ellis, we'll, from this point forward, we can say 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit is not the problem also. Um, that's, that's fine. Okay, thank you. I like, we like, I've, I wanted like a little tear to, to, to like, let's keep it in Fahrenheit because that's something we understand. But the point is, that's not the problem. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. And I hear that you're talking to us from Kenya? Yeah, I'm right outside Nairobi, Kenya. Is there an environmental reason why you're uh, in Kenya? Uh, no, there is not. I'm okay. actually here. Uh, my, my father has actually wanted to go on a, on a safari, so I'm actually with him here. Fantastic. Oh. I was just there uh, not too long ago, and so I hope you have a wonderful time. Oh, well, thank, uh, th uh, thank you. A special yeah, thank you for, for taking the time to chat with us this morning. Let's start, obviously, with the, with the piece. Why don't you give us a, a little summary of, of um, the, what's behind the piece? Yeah, so uh, obviously climate change has been very much on everyone's mind this year as we've passed basically the hottest year ever. Uh, on, in the history of the planet. So th that's very much on people's minds. Uh, at the same time, this idea that the big problem is that we're somehow entering this time of, of climate problems uh, really gets around the, the ultimate reason why we're having this. I would call uh, the fact that the planet is heating up so fast a, a, a symptom of a, of a kind of problem that we have, not the actual problem itself, which is a failure of those who have enriched themselves the most from using fossil fuels uh, to actually take responsibility and deal with the consequences. And of course, to try to not only reverse that, but to, to end the use of fossil fuels. Okay, and, and by those, when you say those of us who, uh, who use fossil fuels, you're probably pointing the finger at at, among other places, the U.S. in its uh, consumption of natural, overconsumption of natural resources, per se? Yeah, I think the simplest way to think about what it means to change climate with fossil fuels is to look at the historical, the long-term amount of fossil fuel combustion. So when you look at the amount of fossil fuels that have been burned per person, that really gives you a sense of the responsibility for how much climate is changing. Mm -hmm. And it's true right now at the current time, right, that, for example, that China has surpassed all other nations in, in the annual 
emissions of from fossil fuels uh, that are causing climate change. But on the other hand, uh, if you look at it at a per capita level, it's still significantly lower. And then if you consider the historical amount of fossil fuels burned in places like the United States or the United Kingdom, these early industrial countries that became rich from fossil fuels, uh, this basically is a very, very much higher number than it is for most of the rest of the world. So those countries that have burned the most have responsibility for reversing this. Okay, so so how would that responsibility kind of express itself? Where do we start? Yeah, well, I, I mean, the good thing is, is that I think a lot of people are starting, just as we're also seeing some of the most... Uh, I, I think uh, more scary parts of climate change happening. We're also seeing the solutions coming into play. Mm -hmm. uh, and the solutions obviously involve an alternative source of energy. People aren't gonna suddenly stop using energy to do what they need to do. Uh, and so we're, we're, we need to have an energy transition. And of course that means replacing fossil fuels with other sources of energy and things like solar have started to take on a life of their own as they become even cheaper than, than a lot of fossil fuels. And so, so that's one of those transitional things. But this needs to be done at a global scale, obviously, and the investments need to speed up. And, and that's part of the, the, the challenge, right, is ending the use of fossil fuels. And the United States, through the, through the, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, is actually spending, really starting to spend what it takes to really have this energy transition. And of course, in, in, this, in climate change and the energy transition are two big transformative changes in in human lives right one is we have to we have to change the energy system we have to deal with with the, the consequences of climate change right we're going to have to deal with sea level rise we're going to have to deal with more intense storms and extended droughts and these other things that require basically protecting people against these things but you also have to deal with the fact that for example coal miners are not going to be able to mine coal anymore and they have mm -hmm. to have other sources of income and so uh, protecting people in the industries that are have to transition out of fossil fuels and into other sources of energy is also really important. And, and, and it, like I said, the Inflation Reduction Act is a good example of the way forward in that it, it points in that direction. And it's not just about climate change, right? The Inflation Reduction Act does not include the word climate in it, mm. in the title. Right. Uh, it's about things that people care about on a more daily level, right? Which is having jobs and incomes and all that sort of thing. It actually kind of harkens back to the interview we just had yes. with Joshua Fisher about conflict management. When you bring up, say, uh, uh, those that work in the coal industry, there's there is the challenge, right, uh, to 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 wrestle that that potential conflict between uh, economic uh, uh, livelihoods and and environmental awareness and mindfulness. Um, and reducing fossil fuel consumption, how do you manage that? You know, to, how do you collaborate with groups like that and, and get to, uh, well, some measure of success? Yeah, well, the truth is, is that a lot of it involves the plain old classical politics, right? Is you basically have to have most people happy with what you're doing with your government. And if the government is not taking care of people that need help, People are going to be against that government. And so we're seeing a lot of that as, as there's been a lot of failures of the government to address the challenges that have faced most people on an everyday basis. That's the kind of thing that people care about the most and will push back on the most. And now that with climate change, right, it's something that for many people can seem very abstract and not really connected to their daily lives. And so 
to the extent that we can make it part of their daily lives and make it part of regular politics in the sense that like, if you want a better future, it involves addressing climate change. You know, the better future does not exist if we do not address climate change. Mm. And so putting that into the equation, people do care about a better future for their children, whether it involves climate change or not. Uh, and so just putting that into the equation of it's not really about climate change. It's not really about 1.5 degrees. It's about making a better future for our children, for our neighbors, for ourselves, et cetera. Yeah, and I'm curious too, um, what is the mindset um, in the scientific world? Because although we believe there are certain truths, and I, I would think that most scientists would agree with that, are there some um, differentiant um, disagreements and the human impact that scientists have, like on what kind of impact that we are having on the earth? So in the scientific world, is everyone on the same page or are there still conflicts there? Well, I think it would be, uh, it would be absurd if, if we could expect anybody to know what's going to happen in the future over the long term. As you know, right, things change in the human world, especially at rates and in ways that are almost impossible to predict. You know, just putting climate change aside and just talking about any kind of prediction about the future, mm -hmm. the evidence is pretty clear when people study predictions about the future is that they're mostly wrong and experts aren't necessarily always that much better than your average person at predicting the future. So I think what we really have to be prepared for is a future that's not very predictable. But one thing that there are a few things that are predictable, and, and one of them is basically you add more greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, you will have a hotter planet. There's there's really not a, much complexity there mm -hmm. uh, where the complexity is, at least for that purpose of, of understanding what happens when you heat up the planet with greenhouse gases is that, there you know, a lot of this is unprecedented. There isn't a whole lot to fall back on experimentally or anything like that. So. Uh, I think we, we have to realize that what we're doing is a kind of experimentation with one of the most important things in our lives, which is, you know, you think about everyone checks the weather every day. Well, we're messing with the system that produces weather and we're doing it in ways that we don't really know. The one thing we know is that the more fossil fuels we burn, the more greenhouse gases there are, hotter the planet's going to get. I, I get that, that um, we've kind of uh, uh, have a way of, uh, addressing denialism uh, in these days. But I think a, a, a growing challenge now is trying to address what I'll describe as a delayism or deferism. Like, oh, do we really, do I really need to stop traveling to uh, Geneva and in Paris every summer? Kenya. <laughs> you know, uh, because that impacts my quality of life, you know. Uh, and, and so, trying to get people and I'm I mean obviously I'm burrowing down to individual responsibility now not necessarily government or institutional responsibilities but but that's that's part of the challenge too and trying to get people to take personal responsibility uh, and understand the impacts that their personal uh, livelihoods or quality of life has on on the planet well absolutely we want people to think and care about this issue personally. But the idea that you're simply going to change the way that the energy system functions by doing something different yourself is not, like you don't have the ability to produce a different energy system. Mm -hmm. And the things that, the systems that power your activities, whether it's getting to work, which is something you need to do, uh, all that stuff 
is not something that you are under control of in the sense of, you know, you, you can't not go to work and, you know, other ways of getting to work might be just, just dysfunctional. So we're not going to solve climate change by everybody deciding not to go to work because it's too far or something like that. Right. Um, and uh, we we could we could put it down to not eating or eating too much meat or people traveling in the air and all this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And and those things you know are relevant personal decisions. But the thing that will really change the game, and that's what we're talking about here, this idea that we're going to chip away and that's going to be enough. Mm -hmm. We need to really change the game. The good news is it is starting to change, but we have to go. Mm -hmm to an energy system that does not use fossil fuel. So uh, to the extent that we can do this quickly and effectively, that's what really matters. And so we need to put pressure on every aspect of the system that does that by preferring clean energy, by voting clean energy. This sort of thing is really what's going to make the most difference. We're speaking with Earl Ellis. He's a professor of geography and environmental systems at the University of Maryland in Baltimore County. We're talking, uh, among other things, about uh, his uh, guest essay in the New York Times titled 1.5 Degrees is Not the Problem. So you, you mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act as an example of a success. In, uh, on well, it's, it's, it's a, an example of moving in the right direction. Yeah, okay. Not... Okay. Yeah. Okay. We're moving in the right direction. Compa well, we're not. We're not on the deck saying mission accomplished yet. That's for sure. Okay. But but uh, better to have it than not. Uh, are there other um, uh, other um, efforts going on? Let's say in other countries similar that have similar uh, directional movements like that. Oh, that's an excellent question, and I wish I was more of a political science scientist so I could. <laughs> be more aware of those particular examples. Well, uh, I mean, the, the one example I brought up in the essay in the New York Times was uh, something related but not the same, which was the success, which was, you could declare, I mean, obviously everything hasn't healed up with the ozone uh, situation yet, mm -hmm. but the, the, the problem of CFC or chlorofluorocarbon emissions like Freon from, from refrigerators that was causing the ozone hole uh, we've turned the corner completely on that. That was an example of international success and international negotiation right. with industries and the, that everyone went at the table, decided to phase out and or phase down and then phase out uh, CFCs completely. And it, it, it's not completely analogous to fossil fuels, which are a much more widespread, unpatented kind of uh, technology. Right. It's a very generic thing that almost anyone can burn coal. Um, so it's a, a kind of a different level of technology. But, but the one thing that really was critical to solving the ozone hole chlorofluorocarbon emissions problem was that the producing countries, those who were most advanced, who had made the most money on this, they were the ones who took the leadership to phase out this chemical that was destroying the ozone and replace it with chemicals that wouldn't destroy the ozone. And that leadership, that exemplifying responsibility for the problem that they are causing is what brings about the kinds of transformative system level change that we need to have to avoid the worst effects of climate change. Right. I, I see in, in some ways the, the, the comparison, but to your point, chlorofluorocarbons are you know a family of chemicals that 
had um, there was a a response to the to the the use of those CFCs by using other alternative chemicals or or doing away with them altogether and finding uh, other ways to um, uh, get a, get along in the world without CFCs. Like you say, fossil fuels is a much more existential <laughs> issue because it's coal, oil, natural gas. It's the the lifeblood of our economies. That is a a bigger challenge, but um, like you say, there there are there are pathways. And going back to coal, I, I'd like to uh, point towards coal use here in the U.S. as kind of another success story, or so to speak. That I think just 20 years ago, somewhere around 60 percent of our daily production of electricity came from the burning of coal. Now I'm. Don't quote me here, but according to the U.S. EIA, I think it's somewhere around 18 to 20 percent of electricity production these days is from coal. So again, m- m- examples of movement uh, down uh, the the proper path. Um, of course, now natural gas use has kind of increased as a result of that in some ways. Well, but, you could argue that that the success of the natural gas industry was what killed coal. Yes. Simple. Yeah. Right. Natural gas turned out to be much cheaper. It's much cleaner in, in many different ways. In, in, from the point of view of uh, greenhouse gas emissions, it's much cleaner per unit of energy generated. Uh, it also doesn't produce as much air pollution, so it's much you're more compliant with air pollution regulation. So it, for many reasons, it outcompeted coal and pretty much has displaced. And now solar is up there pushing also. It's also become cheaper than coal. And so these are examples of energy system transitions that things like the uh, Inflation Reduction Act is pushing even further. And, and so all those things coming together to, to, to make this energy transition happen are, are really critical. But, but I think the most critical thing of all is people realizing that this is a system level change that we just need to get on board with and, and, and make it happen. And the government is critical for that and popular support is critical for that. And we need to avoid just you know making it all about your personal responsibility. That really has produced what I would call the, the climate doomism that we're, we're facing with a lot of our young people yeah. who feel just completely disempowered, like they can't face the future. They, they don't even want to try because they feel so hopeless about what it takes to change things for the better. But the reality is things already are changing for the better. We just need to push harder. And, and, I, and I think that to the extent that we can realize that, that we really do have the tools in hand, it's more a matter of the will and, and the, the political will, the social will, getting together on things that really is gonna make the difference. It really isn't about whether we've crossed 1.5 degrees or not. It's really about whether we cross that threshold of, are we able to really work together to solve this thing? That's the threshold that matters. Right. And you just touched on something that I'm curious about. You are a professor of geography and environmental studies at the University of Maryland. And when you're speaking to these young people mm-hmm. uh, and what are some of the messages that you're really trying to get across and, and what are some of the things um, if you can take the temperature of the room, so to speak, of these students, what uh, is some of the feedback that you're getting um, from them and what are the things that they are most concerned about or interested in? Well, so, I, so I've taught an introductory course on environmental science and conservation for almost 20 years now. And over time, things have really changed with the way that young students, these are mostly freshmen, think about environmental issues. And it started off at kind of, I would say, 
you know, 20 years ago, you know, it was a very popular thing, but people didn't really have a clear notion of what really mattered in terms of what needed to be done, what are the big challenges and this sort of thing. Uh, climate change was an issue, but it wasn't so clearly focused as it is now. Now, uh, a lot of students are really, con they're really concerned about it. Uh, and that concern translates not just into the idea of I want to learn more and I want to become more involved in solutions. Like I said, it's also translated to some degree into a kind of uh, anxiety about the future that's expressed in many different ways. Um, on the other hand, I do get a lot of students, they, they do believe that we can shape a better world than we have in the past, that we are in a position technologically, politically, all these things to move toward a, a better way of making the future than we have in the past. So it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit more people are really concerned that things have gotten to a really seriously dangerous level with the way that we're managing the environment of the planet. Uh, so the, the, the concerns are higher, but also I do see a lot more people who are more focused on solutions orientations. And like what, not, what do we need to do and yeah. how can we get it done? And not for nothing, there is simply more uh, opportunity to educate ourselves on these issues uh, compared to, well, back in the 70s and early 80s when I was going through school and pursuing a degree in environmental engineering, there was literally just a handful of schools that had environmental engineering or environmental science programs, uh, your undergraduate or graduate level. Um, and, and now um, th that, you know, there, there are dozens and dozens or hundreds of schools at, who offer those down to, to the high school level too, environmental science programs and in, in in classes in high school. So there's, so there's a, a great, a, a larger opportunity, greater opportunities to take the time and educate ourselves on these issues, uh, their, their conflicts and their potential resolutions. So thank you for pursuing this. Well, it's been a, a great career so far. I mean, I feel like it's one of these things you could call it a growth industry. It may not yeah. be a good thing in some ways, but there's no question that more this, this greater concern and the greater effort to deal with environmental challenges has led to, in a sense, a kind of industry and an educational system that is more and more capable of addressing these challenges. And, and so and, you, you can easily see that as well. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, again, uh, we, we got a, a couple more minutes, and I'll circle back to our previous interview with Joshua Fisher, in the end, we talked about the, the challenges of trying to get um, uh, separate parties or disparate parties understand that this is not a zero-sum game, that uh, improving the environment, reducing our use of fossil fuels um, is, is a win-win situation and not, you know, I lose and you win in those cases. Absolutely. And, and there's so many clear examples of this. I mean, no matter what you think of Elon Musk, uh, his, his foresight in, in the electric vehicle market has made him very rich. Mm -hmm. And the idea that, you know, that, that big transitions like this aren't amazing opportunities for all sorts of people to do all sorts of things, uh, whether it becomes getting rich or just achieving unprecedented things. That's what's happening right now. We are in a time of opportunity to change things. And, and, and I think people need to feel that. When people feel that, then we, when we really do change things. And that's, that's the ultimate lesson of what we learn from when we see that people are changing the world. When people work together, we can change the world. So we just need to focus on changing the world for the better. Oh, 
That's and, a great. And Claire is, is nodding to say, let's wrap up that's, with Well, that. that's a great exclamation <laughs> point when you hear a sound bite and you think, yes, that's the one. Um, but, you know, even as you're traveling through Kenya, you can see um, some changes in in coal and the way they're burning things. And, and uh, you know, all across the board, across the, the world, I think that people are recognizing where we need to make a difference and uh, play a part. So thank you so much again for your role that you're playing. And what's next for you uh, as far as your writings or are you working on something right now? Uh, well, I would say my most exciting project that I'm working on right now is, is some work uh, in collaboration with the, the Human Development Report Office of the United Nations, in which they're the group that produces the Human Development Index. And what we're trying to do is to come up with a kind of environmental indicator that is as much of an aspiration as human development is, right? So not just about how can we keep from destroying the environment, what can we, what can we do to improve the environment? How do we look at, at, at our efforts to improve the environment? Uh, as an aspiration for everyone, just like having a job or better health. Well, there's a target to aim for. That, yeah, Earl, that's the goal. Swap that out with swap out 2.7 degrees with an HDI. Yes, and we'll have to have you on to talk about that when uh, when it's complete. Well, thank you so much. We do you have something, Chris? Sorry. No, I'll okay. just wrap up. Professor Earl Ellis, he's a professor of geography and environmental systems at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Professor Ellis, do you have a website that people can go to to learn more about your work? I do. It's uh, it's a little bit strange spelling. Anthro, like anthropology. Yes. And ecology. So anthroecology.org anthroecology.org. Professor Ellis, again, thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. All right. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Thank you.